it, this is a great actually context for me to talk about this because I'm interested in the topic of emergence and um, I think you get the cleanest conception of what emergence, um, at least of the sort I'm interested in, looks like within the context of a power ontology. So, so it's a nice connection with the, the theme of, of this uh, running seminar. So human persons, of course, are the uh, most profound point of convergence of the world's uh, basic forms of complexity, uh, physical, chemical, biological, psychological, informational, social. We appear to be unique among living species in having the ability to engage in long-range uh, individual and collective planning, or at least planning behavior that exceeds uh, rudimentary foraging and storage behavior and is sort of systematically thought through. Standing out more dramatically are our abilities to partly control and manipulate the very biological and environmental conditions of our continued survival and to alter dramatically the circumstances of our day-to-day -day habitat. Furthermore, we think and act within complex moral and religious narratives, apart from which much of what we do would make uh, no sense. A basic philosophical scientific question, a question on the interface of, of philosophy and science, is whether these and other remarkable abilities and tendencies that we have signal some kind of discontinuity in the evolutionary processes that gave rise to us, and if so, to what extent and in what form. Each of the many sciences that uh, consider the phenomenon, phenomena of human life do so with different methodologies and from different altitudes, you might say, degrees of abstraction. Uh, whether and how they mesh the, the ways, the perspectives, and thinking about the nature of complexity from these different sciences, whether and how they mesh so as to provide a unitary, or a picture of a unitary whole, which is our cosmos, is itself a substantive open question. Some of the sciences have invested to what you might call a mid-game stage. It might well be that we are not currently in position to see which of them offer, merely offer useful models rather than more or less accurate maps of their domains. A good place to consider how theories from different domains interrelate is in their characterization of organized complexity. That is, and what, what people mean roughly by the term organized complexity is phenomena that exhibit strikingly different sort of robust patterns than those seen among their constituent elements when not so organized. A new, new type of pattern, coarse strain pattern, kicks in um, uh, in situations of organized complexity. Organized complexity is seen and studied at a number of levels represented in living human beings. Theorists have described each of these pattern phenomena as exhibiting emergent. It's a, a term that's come back in vogue, an old term from the 19th century, or sometimes top-down causation or control. It is tempting in conversation, I, I go to a lot of interdisciplinary client, uh, philosophy science type conferences, um, and I've learned that it is tempting for specialists in the sciences to develop a model of their favored phenomena, and then to suggest that that model holds the key to thinking about naturally emergent phenomena generally. But it seems to me it is rash to assume that there is a single notion of emergence that accurately and usefully applies to all cases of interest. Maybe emergence is something more dramatic in some metaphysical way, or fundamentally significant uh, in some cases of pattern complexity 
than in others. And that, that's an empirical question. And what follows, what I want to do, is to try to isolate two distinct senses of emergence, which I will call weak and strong. And I will do so explicitly in terms of a causal powers metaphysics. That is a, a conception that um, analyzes causation in terms, th- thinks of uh, natural properties as um, uh, fundamentally dispositional in character, irreducibly dispositional in, in character. So by the very nature of a property is to be a tendency to interact with other kinds of properties towards certain effects. Um, it's an interesting question to me, actually, whether and how the distinction that I want to draw can be made in alternative metaphysical uh, theories of properties, such as broadly Humean ones, ones inspired by David Hume's causal reductionism, or Hume's alleged causal reductionism. Uh, I'm not the only one to use the unimaginative terms weak and strong um, and to, to try to signal some kind of uh, distinction among different concepts of emergence, but you shouldn't assume, if you have some familiarity with some that, that literature, you should not assume that the intended notions for me are the same across such usages, even among philosophers. The notions I have in mind are not orthogonal, but are rather of, you might say, differing logical strengths. Right? Um, Strong emergence implies weak emergence, basically, and not vice versa. Furthermore, they signal a basic division on each side of which one may conceive variant forms, possibly such that one may think in terms of degrees of robustness um, of emergence under those forms. I'm not going to develop that way of that, that idea. The contemporary sciences are very complicated and nuanced. This is good for the advancement of knowledge, since the world itself is complicated and nuanced. But it can make it difficult to see the fundamental issue I wish to raise. So, I will invite us to consider a kind of toy world, whose dynamics are quite transparent. You don't need calculus, you don't even need algebra to to understand what's going on in my toy world. Um, It will be easy to isolate my two senses of emergence in relation to this kind of world, and to grasp what kind of evidence would enable one to decide conclusively whether both notions or merely the weaker notion, notion has application? I will then consider the evidentiary standing for strong emergence in the actual world. What, what, is the, what is the epistemic status of the thesis that strong emergence is exhibited in our world? Uh, can, and the evidence specifically connected to human and animal psychology, mental phenomena. That, that, that'll come at the end. All right, so the game of life in two forms of emergence. My toy world has conveniently been supplied to us by the mathematician John Conway in the form of his cellular, so-called cellular automaton, the game of life. Um, versions of the game of life are readily available online. Probably some of you are a bit familiar with that. Uh, life, in, su- in short, is a dynamic, spatially and temporally discrete Time chunks, time atoms, and, and space atoms rather than continuity, right? Which makes it easier to kind of think about the dynamics. Uh, and it's a, it's an infinite grid in theory. So you only you know look at it on a computer screen. You're, what you're looking at, you think of as a portion of a infinite two-dimensional grid. One sets an arbitrary initial state simply by assigning one of the two. There are only two basic properties: live or dead to each of the square cells. So cells are your basic units, your atoms, 
right? In the metaphysical sense, there's partless entities that are either live or dead. And that's it. There's nothing, there are no other intrinsic properties. We have mass in charge. We don't have to worry about all that. Each subsequent, so that's what you do. You just, you just say for every, uh, uh, square on the grid, is it live or dead? Maybe you say the live ones are colored in black, right? And then you leave white, the ones that are dead. Each subsequent state of the grid is wholly determined by applying the follow, the three rules you have on your handout to every cell. And note that every cell has eight neighbors in every direction if you include those going diagonally. Okay, those are included. So you have a birth rule. Sometimes these rules get labeled a little bit differently. In fact, indeed, sometimes the rules are presented slightly different in an equivalent. They're, they're, as a set, they're equivalent. They have equivalent consequences, but I'll, I'll do it this way. Birth rule. A dead cell with exactly three, li- exactly three live neighbors becomes, at the next time, Adam, a live cell. Survival. A live cell with two or three live neighbors stays alive and then death. In all other cases, a cell dies or remains dead. So as the diagram, that little diagram on your handout, illustrates, over time, stable clusters of various kinds arise and exhibit macro-level dynamical patterns. So I, I just I just took this off of a page on the internet. So if you have those four live cells stacked like that, and nothing comes in from outside, and, and so there's, there's, there's no other living things in the neighborhood, that will convert to that six-cell thing, and it will then uh, convert to that other pattern, and it will remain that way, uh, absent something else coming in. Uh, and then you see a death sequence in the middle, and then the third sequence you see involves repetition. You start off in the first one, you'll end up with what's on the right, and again, if nothing else comes in, um, it, it will then cycle back. Okay? So there are, there are lots of different kinds of oscillations and patterns. This is very elementary because it just considers, you might say, one little macroscopic cluster. There are interesting patterns involving the, the interaction when different clusters come into contact. When that happens, when clusters come into contact, they often exhibit still newer patterns of interaction with each other, and app names have been given to certain ones that are very common in life worlds, such as oscillator, glider, puffer, and eater, gun, right, that shoots out little things. Um, once these clusters appear, their macro-level behavior can be studied in, it, this is what's, this is what, what makes looking at life worlds really interesting to people, is that once you have this interesting macro-level behavior, you can study that behavior and discern the patterns, even if you don't know what the three micro-level rules are, right? Uh, so so you, you don't need to be told how things, you can just sort of see certain regular patterns. Just if, if the only vocabulary you had were the macroscopic vocabulary, you could you could figure out after a few iterations what the patterns are, even though you don't know the basic dynamics at the cellular level. Interestingly, different sorts of high-level patterns are observed in games with different initial conditions. It turns out to be really tricky. Sometimes people misrepresent the, um, some of the lessons to be learned from life world. Sometimes you hear philosophers, sorry about that. Um, sometimes you hear philosophers um, say things like, you know, life shows that organized complexity is trivial. It's just guaranteed to happen. Now, actually, John Conway um, talked about it took a lot, he was a very smart mathematician, a lot of work to, to figure out how to set things up such that you've got interesting level, macro level patterns. You've got to have just the right initial conditions, the rules, 
you, you, you toy, played around with those three rules a little bit, you tweak them, you get really uninteresting worlds. You wouldn't see interesting macroscopic patterns emerge in some sense. Now, if we think of Conway's two-dimensional grid as a kind of toy world, and there are three-dimensional versions of it as well, you can play around again online if you want to see all the different kinds of stuff people do with these. The three basic rules and its initial state, the initial state of, of the grid, constitutes its fundamental physics, we might say. The higher level patterns then can be thought of either as its chemistry or biology, if you like. These high level patterns exhibit what I will term weak, or you might say physics closed emergence. They are, on the one hand, emergent in the sense that one cannot, in any straightforward way, derive the high level rules from the fundamental rules alone. Just by knowing the fundamental rules, you cannot derive what the high-level rules are going to be. I mean, I already told you that in different worlds, same rules, same fundamental rules, that have different initial conditions, different high-level patterns emerge, um, present themselves. Uh, though, at least for the case at hand, one could do so in principle in a very laborious roundabout way if you had the low-level rules plus the initial conditions, if you had no limits on computational time. There would be a way you could you could deduce um, what the high-level rules are going to be in that one. So I define weak emergence on your handout as some aspects of the behavior of a specifiable type of composite organized system exhibit ongoing or recurrent law-like patterns that, outside this organizational context, are neither exhibited by a system's components, nor are they describable in terms of the concept, concepts of the most compact theory that fully describes the component behavior. Okay, that, that was kind of a mouthful. Way. I should find a simpler way of expressing that. Um, but the idea is basically, you know, you get these interesting patterns that only occur in special organized contexts, context, and the vocabulary, the, the properties, macroscopic, the terms you use to describe the macroscopic properties and the dynamical patterns are not going to be the, the terms that you would use uh, to describe the properties and patterns at the low level. It's a different type of, of chunky pattern. The high-level rules of life are only... So, I, so that's why you might, in that sense, they're emergent. But the high-level rules of life are only weakly emergent in that they do not alter or supplement the basic dynamics that drive the world's evolution. That is, the physics of a standard life world is causally closed with each total configuration of the grid at some time, T1, being strictly determined by its state at the previous time, T0, in accordance with the three basic rules alone. The rules in the fire state are always, for every moment in time, sufficient for determining the total state of the grid at the next time. So the high-level rules, or whatever you think about their, their interesting status, they don't do anything to affect how things unfold at a cellular level. A Laplacian calculator, no computational limits, um, could be ignorant, could, could, could just focus on the cells and the dynamics. He would not need to revert to high-level patterns to understand something that's going on when looking at the world in cellular terms. That said, uh, those who emphasize the significance of weak emergence point out that the high-level theory that applies to composites such as gliders, guns, and eaters is irreducible to the cellular theory, and so constitutes a relatively autonomous explanatory system. 
and we can predict and explain certain macro-level phenomena using only our knowledge of the macro-level laws and facts. Uh, this is, of course, absent the disruption of collision with merely physical clusters, um, just as in our world, uh, just as in our world, biology is not going to tell you what will happen next um, when a meteor strikes a local ecosystem, right? So biology only holds under certain um, conditions, right? Similarly, in a, in a life world, you might get robust patterns of interaction between certain kinds of entities, but if a uninteresting, not just a mere hunk of stuff that doesn't have interesting recurring patterns, starts moving in the direction of one of these things, you know, all bets are off in terms of the high-level theory of what's going to happen. If you want to know what's going to happen, you're going to have to use um, the more basic theory and just work it out cell by cell. So, so it's a limited context um, type of theory. Only the physics is, is, is um, you know, comprehensive. Biology applies in special domain. Moreover, for certain purposes, a biological explanation of a biologically configured state is more illuminating than a merely physical explanation, right? Expl explanation is purpose relative. You might uh, want to understand um, in macroscopic terms what's going on. So if we not only observe, but intervene, and, and furthermore, if we not only observe, but intervene in a life so we imagine kind of miraculously with we do a godlike intervention, we, we we manipulate the value of one high-level variable while holding constant other relevant uh, factors, we can change the, the value of another high-level variable in very systematic, predictable ways and in a variety of contexts. This indicates that we have not only high-level explanation, but also a high-level causal form of explanation. That's the, the brief for why we should think of weak emergence as an interesting kind of emergence. However, on the other side, um, we should observe that this theoretical or explanatory irreducibility in standard life forms is matched by a physical reduction in the following sense. First, the state of every stable cluster at any moment is wholly fixed and constituted by the properties of each of its cells and their arrangements. Second, the cluster's evolution over time is fundamentally determined by the basic physical laws. Each macro-level event, such as a glider's changing position over a time interval, has a macro has a micro-level cause. The sum total of all the micro-level causes of its component positions and behavior, and thus a micro-level causal explanation. Now, crucial, we've got two explanations that you could potentially offer for the very same phenomena where where we refer just to what's going on in a region, but without using descriptive terms like that organized thing or that bunch of cells, right? We just kind of gesture at the phenomenon. And there's two different ways we could induce a kind of explanatory, causal explanatory account of how, how what's going on in that region changes moment to moment, right? A micro level and a macro level. Crucially, the micro level causation determines the macro level causation and not vice versa. It's an asymmetrical determination. Macro level events are not doing anything extra over and above what the micro level events are doing in order to bring about the positions and behavior of gliders, eaters, and the like. 
Macro-level events, then, do not make a non-redundant causal difference to the behavior of the objects in such a life world. Macro-level events in, in objects in such worlds are weakly emergent only. That is, they are theoretically, explanatorily irreducible, but ontologically and causally derivative. All right, once one gets used to looking at things in this way, ontological and causal reductionism can begin to seem inevitable, both in any imaginable variety of simulated life world, but also in any law-governed physical world, such as ours, notwithstanding our world's added complexity of having three spatial dimensions, not just two, having a richer inventory of basic properties, and being continuous in space and time. Our world's more complicated, but you might think it's surely, if it's law-governed, Things have to go in the way I've described up till now, how things go in the life world. Surely, the thought goes, any sort of organized com complex phenomena must be grounded in comprehensive underlying patterns that hold, without exception, in every context of universal physics. Well, whatever is true with respect to comprehensive ontological reductionism, in, in the sense I've identified, in the actual world, we can readily describe variations on standard life worlds that enable us to see that this need not be the case. There exists a coherent form of alternative. There's conceptual space for an alternative. And here's how, and I think the life world is a good way to see this. So, imagine that you are handed a tall stack, a thick stack of very large, um, of course they can't be infinite, but, but very large, um, Consecutively numbered sheets of graph, we call graph papers for us. You used to map out uh, Cartesian uh, coordinates and stuff on, right? What you used in secondary school to do your math assignments, okay? So you're, you're handed uh, a stack of these and they're numbered, starting with page one. On them are changing snapshots of a life world, where the, the uh, we'll say the blackened squares are live cells. Now, you have not been told, uh, imagine that you have not been told the basic transitional rules, the, the life, death, and birth rules, and your job is to figure them out. So it's a puzzle, right? Um, after flipping through several, quite a few pages, and kind of trying to look what's going on locally, and then, you know, provisionally coming up with some, some algorithms that seem to capture, okay, does that explain what's going on in this other region? Blah, blah, blah. You know, so you just trial and error. You finally, you hit upon the birth, survival, and death rules as the most, using them jointly as the most compact way to capture all the transitions that happen in every cell without exception. So now, let's assume you're getting paid to do this, so you, you do the tedious task of continuing to check subsequent pages uh, to verify that the rules hold without exception. But then, on page number 505, the result departs in a small way from what the rules predict. It breaks down. All of a sudden, your three rules don't fully capture the transition from page 504 to page 505. You observe that the divergence is restricted. So most for most of page 505, the rules capture it perfectly, but there's this little restricted, complex, we'll say star-shaped cluster that uh, first appeared on the previous page, came about predictably, using the basic rules, you have this interesting star-shaped cluster, and then what happens next to the star-shaped cluster, either in the interior or right on the, or on the, on the periphery of, you can imagine different 
different ways of thinking about it, but there's some divergence. One or more of the cells in or around the star-shaped cluster um, is differently shaded than what your rules led you to expect. Flipping ahead, uh, so you, you note this, and then you observe that as more of these star-shaped clusters predictably appear, their subsequent evolution, too, departs from what the three basic rules predict. Further investigation by you reveals that the form the divergence takes is identical in each case. Every time a precise type of star shape appears, you get a certain kind of divergence from the basic rules, and it's always the same. Same kind of divergence. Well, armed with this, this information, you now can predict, upon seeing the emergence of a star shape, uh, what the future world state will be, using modified, disjunct, somewhat un, unhappily disjunctive forms of the original rules. So the new birth rule becomes some, has the form a dead cell with exactly three live neighbors, becomes a live cell, except when occurring within the bounds of or immediately adjacent to a star cluster, which you've given a precise definition to, in which case such and such, whatever the divergence is. I had a uh, student um, involved in a seminar talking about this sort of stuff, and I had a um, Norwegian student who created a little program to do that. I don't know, yeah, <laughs> where, where you could get just this kind of difference. Um, and he, he, he gave a precise kind of, he decided what the difference would be. Um, so I, I, I wish I had brought it, I could show, show you what it looks like. But we're philosophers here, we're used to thinking about this abstractly. Imagine it goes a little bit differently. Now, imagine, furthermore, that as multiple star clusters come into contact, new modifications of the original rules are required. It's not enough, right? Uh, there, there's a new basic kind of divergence that takes place when these things come into contact uh, to fully capture the way they interact. You find that the most compact ways, right? Again, if your job is to come up with the most compact, um, predictive, um, explanatory set of rules that captures everything, you find that the most compact way to capture the total behavior is one, to assign primitive new properties, which you give the names bright and golden to, uh, to star clusters. And then, second, to describe the precise impact of these new properties of the clusters on the ordinary, that is, in, in non-macroscopic context, on the ordinary micro-level dynamics, via additional laws that are no less fundamental than the three basic transition rules themselves, even though they apply only in limited context. That is, you need both, even to understand what's going on at a cellular level. You need to understand the original transition rules, and you need these new rules that, that map um, high-level macroscopic properties to microscopic difference, right? Uh, those rules only, um, they're dormant, you might say, in context where they, they simply have no application, where, of course, the, the complex property is not instantiated. That they only say something about the impact of them. But they're, they're just as fundamental. Turns out, complete physics, if you like, requires both the micro and the, and the special case macro-micro laws. This world that you've been given to inspect exhibits what I will call strong emergence. And uh, you see how I define it there on your handout. So you have strong emergence just in case some aspects of the behavior of a specifiable type um, of 
organized system, so starship, for example, are such that they cannot be fully described, even at a microphysical level of description, by compact lower-level rules that don't make reference to macroscopic structures, and second, they can be fully described by rules that essentially involve reference to macroscopic structures and properties. I take it, maybe you'll disagree, let's see, uh, but I take it that, that thinking of imagining this variation on the life world shows us that worlds manifesting strong emergence are plainly coherent possibilities. But are they, as some suppose, objectionably strange or magical? Ones that ought to offend the sensibilities of a properly empirically minded theorist, right? So you say, well, yeah, maybe it's an, uh, a theoretical possibility, but we ought to just discount in, in practice the very possibility that our world could, could exhibit that kind of emergence, strong emergence. I don't see why, myself, unless one is in the grips of a simple building block picture of physical reality and treats the hypothesis that everything that happens is wholly fixed by compact micro-regularities without regard to macro-level context as some sort of a priori truth, right? It's some kind of everything is built up in a smooth, uniform way from the bottom up, right? But it's not an, an a priori truth. It seems rather, then, that there ought to be no presumption one way or another in advance of a sufficiently thorough investigation of the empirical facts. As the early 20th century emergentist Samuel Alexander put it, we should come to the world with the natural piety of the investigator. And we just we take the world as we find it, and we, we do the best we can. Perhaps you are thinking that a world with strong emergence is somehow fundamentally disunified. Right? They say that's, you know, it goes this way until a certain point in time, and then it doesn't. That's a very, uh, you know, that, that doesn't sound like a, a, a a pleasing kind of world, uh, and perhaps theoretically we, we ought not to be satisfied with that way of describing any world we find ourselves in. So that would be a proper conclusion, fundamental disunity, if departures from the simple rules happened willy-nilly, that is, at random, without any predictable pattern to them. But in this scenario I outlined, the new patterns once discovered and the conditions of their appearance are learned will become wholly predictable. There are sufficient conditions involving organized complexity of a certain kind for their appearance. Or, if the emergent laws happen to be indeterministic, you get merely probabilistic laws describing the impact of emergent properties, which is a possibility, then, the, then there, are object, there will be objective probabilities associated with such conditions. Given that this is so, to make sense of the new phenomena, we need only enrich our inventory of the fundamental unit properties. Supposing, so what I, what I think you should do is, you should suppose, okay, at first I thought the only properties that cells, fundamental natural properties of cells, are live and dead. And that, that was an adequate hypothesis up to a certain point in time when a certain kind of um, macroscopic complex behavior kicked in, and now what I need to realize is this is, show, this is showing me that all along there was, in it, there was one or more additional fundamental properties of the fundamental unit whose dispositional, um, uh, 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 sorry, I tried to gloss and then pick up a sentence. Uh, so the idea being that, um, that there is a dis, what I should suppose is that all the fundamental units 
have a dispositional property that's merely latent outside the requisite macro, macro circumstance. It's been there all along, right? Give it a name. It's a property that, uh, but the disposition that it involves is a disp- disposition to interact with other cells, right, in a defined context and yield some kind of property of the whole that has its, its, its impact. It's that, right? Ordinarily dispositions are dispositions to Inter- we usually think of physics, you know, in a kind of local situation. It's a disposition to interact with one's local in, uh, environment in a way that's captured by dynamical laws of some kind, right? And the idea here is there might be this further disposition that only kicks in in a wider context of a very special sort. So you might say that, um, and, and so a world like that will have, while it will not have continuity of behavior, there is a kind of behavioral discontinuity um, in the strongly emergent context, but there is continuity of total dispositional structure. It was there all along. In worlds, in, in worlds, another way of putting it, in worlds that feature strong emergence, the seeds of every strongly emergent macro property and the behavior that it manifests are there within the world's fundamental elements, latent dispositions awaiting only the right context for manifestation. All right, it's going on a bit longer than I had wanted, so I'm going to have to try to go a little bit quickly um, in talking about strong emergence and consciousness. Um, so let me, uh, I just as I'm glancing at my pages, maybe just talk you through a few things here so that I don't go on for too long. You know, so then you say, well, all right, all right, fine. Suppose you allow, yeah, it's possible working like this, but... Is there any reason to think our world is like this? And I think, interestingly, uh, we actually have evidence. I don't say proof positive, because there are different ways of interpreting the phenomenon. But we have interesting evidence for strong emergence at a very fundamental level of complexity, right? Right within quantum mechanics itself, um, right? Well-confirmed theory seems to indicate that when simple particles go into so-called mixed states, this describing what's going on cannot be decomposed in any sense into any kind of sum, summation of the states of the individual uh, particles prior to going into the states or particle interaction. So there's a weird kind of, at least on a certain interpretation problem. I'm not going to make much out of that, but I just know it's an interesting. You could you could give a strongly emergent description to certain phenomena in quantum mechanics, at least under one interpretation of certain phenomena in mechanics. There's a kind of relational holism. Right, um, in, in, in certain ways of thinking about quantum mechanical phenomena. But outside this domain, the issue gets more difficult to adjudicate. I actually think it's very hard to establish strong emergence or its denial in any domain outside the mental. I, I, I'll, I'll note um, Dennis Noble, a biologist over at Balliol College, very distinguished systems biologist. He, although it's very hard to interpret scientists when they talk about these kind of issues, whether they really mean something like my strong emergence as against weak emergence, but I've talked to him, uh, I've had opportunity to talk to him on a couple of occasions, and it certainly seems like he's inclined to think in something, in some kind of metaphysical way about emergence that he thinks is right there in basic biology. Um, if you read his book, uh, The Music of Life, he, he, he wants to, it, it, well, it's, it's a diatribe against a kind of Gene-centric way of thinking about biology, a very reductionist 
think Richard Dawkins, um, self-esteem kind of thing, and wanting to say, you can't understand any biological phenomenon without understanding top-down holistic constraints. I think he's too quick in his argument. I'm, I'm rash enough as a philosopher to critique his own take on his own discipline, uh, and, uh, I think it gets, it's a tricky question deciding is this a, a grant? Sure, that's a beautiful example of peak emergence. Um, but whether or not we think about a strong emergence, the issues are tricky. I don't think it's so straightforward myself. Uh, and I think Conway's standard game of life really is useful for, for teaching you to be, um, very slow to infer strong emergence from striking macroscopic behavior. Right? You, you, you might think of it this way. Striking macroscopic behavior, stable macroscopic behavior, could just be wholly a matter of low-level entities coming to constrain themselves, so to speak, by entering into and collectively maintaining various kinds of stable boundary conditions, merely by doing what they always do in, in, in every context in their local interactions. Two, two, two softening up remarks. One, some, one reason people don't like strong emergence is that it was a popular idea in 19th century, early 20th century biology, and it was refuted by developments in biology. Um, and I think that's true on what the way the Brit the so-called British emergentist, uh, because most of the theorists were British, thought about, um, emergence was shown to be a mistake, right? That is, they had a notion of emergence as when the phenomena, when, you know, when matter organizes itself such that you get living systems, you've got this fundamental new quality called life, which is a kind of primitive, basic quality, right? And, and now, you know, all bets are off, and to a, a large extent, you can now understand what's going on, um, the, 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 the kind of fundamental rules fall away, so to speak. And it's all kind of, so, so you get these, you get these discrete layers in nature. You get the physical, chemical, molecular biological, cell biology, you know, and all these discrete strata with all having their primitive properties that pretty much do all the work once behavior, you know, you need the underlying stuff to explain how you got there. But once you get there, then, you know, under certain conditions, everything can be explained with, uh, in, Basic physics isn't doing any work, right? We now know life, life is an extremely complex biochemical phenomena. Um, we haven't plumbed the depths of it, so that is, uh, biologists who study these things. Um, and we know there are a lot of bottom-up influences on ongoing biological processes in profound ways, right? In mental illness, um, for example, even on psychological phenomena, um, chemical imbalances, right? So, but that just shows us, I think, that we ought to think about if, if we're trying to understand whether there's emergence, strong emergence in our world, that there's going to be myriad upward and downward types of causal interactions going here. It's not as if we have these neatly separatable strata of, of so-called levels of nature, right? They interpenetrate. Right? If there is strong emergence, it doesn't um, obliterate um, the ongoing efficacy of fundamental physical and chemical, you know, chemical, biochemical, and so on. All right, that's one remark. Second remark is, uh, well, just for scientists, right? Scientists, I think there's good reason to be methodologically a reductionist in science. Even if you were su suspected that there was strong emergence, the only way you could get an empirical handle on what, you know, a functional description of what emergent properties there might be, strongly emergent properties, and what difference their presence makes at a fundamental level of description 
is if you have a really good understanding of what's going on in the lower level dynamics outside of that context. And so then you can systematically see the variation, right? Operationalize the difference that it makes. So we have very good reason to, to be methodologically reductionist. But one shouldn't slide from that, 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 that scientific practice should properly have a methodological bias towards reductionism. That's predicted by both, both strong emergence and denial to thinking that gives us some kind of presumptive evidence in favor of strong reductionism. It's just a methodological stance. When it comes to consciousness, this is probably familiar to a lot of you, uh, since I don't know who my audience is here, how interdisciplinary possibly do. That, that, that's my, my word. Am I among friends? Are we all philosophers here? <laughs> 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 all right, you know, you know, so we're all familiar with, uh, uh, you know, phenomenal consciousness and, and you know, the alleged basis that some of us endorse. I'm one of them. I'm simply declaring my colors. I can elaborate for thinking that the properties of conscious experience cannot be plausibly identified with um, complex physical properties. This is highly contentious, but nevertheless, I, I, I buy certain kinds of arguments for that, but we do have um, introspective reasons for thinking that that's right. Um, but I'm not at all, and if, if one works within a powers ontology, one is not going to be sympathetic to the idea of epiphenomenal, purely epiphenomenal properties. Properties are by their very nature just dispositions towards certain kinds of effects, so if there are strongly emergent properties, they make a difference. So translating that in terms of my conscious experience, I have conscious visual experience, uh, of and conscious memory of coffee in front of me, right? Uh, that interacts with my consciously felt desire for coffee, and it has ultimately a physical effect. Okay, the, the squats coming out of my mouth, I'm not telling you about this, right? And also my, my physical behavior of my arm moving and taking a drink of coffee, right? So, conscious states, prima facie, have all kinds of causal influence on physical behavior in the world. And um, I, I, I see no good reason if one allows for the ontological irreducibility of the basic elements of conscious experience to not say that they, they have causal efficacy. Because people, people who are tempted towards the idea that there are qualities of experience um, that are ontologically irreducible, but then want to say they're purely epiphenomenal. Uh, they, they're just, they've got this a priori bias in favor of, kind of causal reduction or causal closure that I think we ought to have. Um, and and um, again, if you have this certain kind of metaphysics, it's just not epiphenomenalism, it's just not, it's a non starter in that kind of um, dispositionalist way of thinking about what natural properties are. I would say it's not just about the qualities of our experience, but also intentional phenomena. Generally, beliefs and desires that are conscious, I think, have, I think you cannot um, uh, extricate qualities of experience from the intentional properties, what my experiences are about, representations of the physical world, my beliefs and desires. And so I, I'm, uh, I have a much broader uh, notion of the irreducibility uh, of um, mental phenomena generally. Yeah, maybe, well, you tell me. I could um, spend another six, seven minutes talking about a, because it, it totally bears on the power of metaphysics. You know, what I was just saying, I just briefly gestured at, it's all familiar, contentious stuff in philosophy of mind, conscious experience. Whether or not introspection gives us reason to regard it as metaphysically irreducible, and, and, and in my way of thinking, strongly emergent. Now, of course, this 
proceeds on the basis of the assumption that uh, that our conscious experiences uh, are, or our, our beliefs about the nature of conscious experience are vertical, are accurate, right? That they're not illusory, right? One, one thing you could say is, right, yeah, we have a naive, uh, seemingly ineradicable, Cartesian kind of disposition to think of ourselves in relation to our own conscious experiences in kind of the way Descartes thought of himself in relation to conscious experiences, right? That is, to think of, of conscious experience as being a kind of immediate um, uh, grasping of the, the intrinsic character of the experiences themselves. But the thought goes, this is an illusion. In fact, you're consci- you have conscious experiences, right? But uh, the intrinsic properties of those conscious experiences are not something disclosed by merely having the experiences. Why? Well, because those intrinsic properties of those experiences are complex physical chemical properties. Because experiences are neurophysiological states, physicalism is assumed, right? And what's what's going on in a way that future cognitive psychology will be the job of future cognitive psychology to explain is beliefs reliably get engendered in you that you have some kind of direct glomming onto your, your own conscious experiences, uh, but that's just not going on. So you just got false illusory beliefs, right? And the beliefs themselves are also physical, right? And so forth, right? Um, so, so this is a way of acknowledging that that we, you know, the, the seeming evidence and just declaring it illusory. We just have these these very these these entrenched mistaken beliefs. Dear Parabu develops this kind of picture, a version of this kind of picture in a, in a book of his um, Phenomenal Consciousness and the Prospects of Physicalism, something like that, 2011. And uh, here's what he wants to say. Uh, so he says, we are reliably and non-inferentially aware of the intrinsic properties of our conscious. He, he adds one thing. We are reliably and non-inferentially aware of the intrinsic properties of our conscious states. Okay? Even though they're not the way we think we are, we can discriminate. Right? Why might you say this, right? Well, it seems to me like if I have an experience of a red thing, right, and then I have an experience of another red thing, I can very reliably say these, not just the things are similar, but uh, the properties of my experience when I look at this thing, the properties, intrinsic properties of my experience, there's color-wise similarity. He's willing to say we can, the physicalist can, can, can give you that as well. It's just that our distinct states of awareness misrepresent these intrinsic properties of the experiences, not the objects, as being structurally simple, when in fact they're quite complex. The, the, the one thing I want to say about that is this, and maybe to save time I'll actually read my last page <laughs> to be, be, be efficient. So here's my fundamental, he calls this the qualitative inaccuracy hypothesis. And the hypothesis is, you do have experiential states. When you have experiential states, conscious experiential states, you do reliably, you are able to discriminate among the intrinsic properties of those states, right? But this is just some kind of capacity you have. You think that the reason you're able to reliably discriminate among the intrinsic properties of your experiential states is, well, because you're aware of the intrinsic properties of those experiences as they are. You know, phenomenal redness, phenomenal blueness, phenomenal rectangularity, and so forth. 
right? You said, that's why I'm able to, to, to say, yeah, here, this experience and that experience are intrinsically the experiences, not just the object. But the experiences are intrinsically similar in certain ways, right? Why? Because I'm aware of the intrinsic properties of those experiences and I can just kind of glom onto the fact that they're, they're the very same or similar properties, right? He says, that's a mistake. That's, you are able to, 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 uh, recognize when your, your, your experiences have similar properties, but, your experience misrepresents those properties, systematically misrepresents them, as being sort of simple, a phenomenal newness of a certain shade or something. And there's nothing like that actually going on at all, right? Um, so so, so you get, it's just a mistaken belief. Reliable, so reliable discrimination about intrinsic properties of experience, absent the idea that the intrinsic properties are, in fact, as they appear to you to be structured simple. So here's my fundamental misgiving about this picture. It relates to this kind of dispositional psychology. Uh, on the resulting picture that he has, intrinsic qualitative character is now entirely missing from our account of reality. If we are scientific realists, intrinsic qualities or, or quiddies, the, the, the intrinsic character of, of, of natural properties in the world, are not to be found in middle-sized physical objects not even in the primary qualities of shape and size. Why? Because these appear to be frame-relative, not absolute, intrinsic properties. And in any case, dualistic emergence aside, the intrinsic properties of middle-sized objects will be structural, uh, and so derivative from the features of the object's parts and their relations. Sphericality, or the, the roundness of the surface of, of this cup, the conical section of that cup, is not going to be a primitive natural property on uh, on physics, right, for scientific realists, um, but the particular shape of this thing is built up on the properties of the parts and their interactions. Thus, any composite intrinsicality will be grounded in the reference of successful foundational physical theories, at the base of which will lie non-structural or absolute intrinsicality, right? There is a intrinsicality in the world is going to be down there in fundamental physics. But what we know about these, even if we assume physics was largely done, which we, right, suppose, suppose, just suppose, best case scenario, physics is largely completed, right, negative charge is in fact a non-structural property, it doesn't decompose, right? Uh, what do we know about negative charge? Well, only about, what well, we, we know about it via the causal profile ascribed to negative charge in our, our dynamical theories. That it, which indicate the way that, that property, properties of negative charge, mass, spin, co-evolve, right? To what sort of entity are we, re, are we referring to, though, when we speak of such qualities? What is negative charge? What is mass? What is you know, spin and other, other properties posited in our basic theories? The robust phenomenal realist, alright, so someone like me, who says, we are acquainted with intrinsic um, properties, namely those the elements of our own conscious experiences, will say, well, those properties of fundamental physical entities are like, they're entities like, say, phenomenal beings. It's not, I'm not proposing panpsychism or anything of, of that sort here, but it's just saying physics is a reliable way of trying to converge upon an understanding of the basic intrinsic properties of the physical world there are intrinsic qualities, and I know what I'm talking about when I talk about intrinsic qualities, 
because I have acquaintance with not basic physical intrinsic quality, but the qualities of my own experience, which are also basic on this strong emergence picture, ontologically basic, right? Uh, even though they're not ubiquitous and, and in the history of our world, they've not been there all along. By contrast, one who embraces the qualitative inaccuracy hypothesis cannot point to any instance of what she means when she refers to intrinsic qualitative character in her metaphysical picture of physical reality. When we try to fill in the nodes of the structural dynamical world net that science describes, um, even in imagination, little blue and red circles and whatnot, right? We only deceive ourselves. It seems to us that we have a... Right? So if I try to think what kind of picture of reality is, is fundamental physics delivering to us, right? it's not enough for me to, I say, maybe some of you will disagree, um, to give a net-like structure picture of reality and just say there are what's-its, you know, just give little numbers, right? Uh, assign numbers to the nodes and have to draw lines of interaction between, you know, so we got a bunch of ones scattered out and a bunch of twos and a bunch of threes and then we got dynamical equations that talk, talk about how ones, twos, and threes co-evolve in certain local regions and something like that, right? I say that's insufficient. We haven't yet envisioned a, um, we haven't yet pictured a world, right? Because we don't know anything about ones, twos, and threes. We know, we, well, other than how they interact, that's something. I'm not, I'm not denying that's something, right? Uh, but that's insufficient to give a, a model of reality. We have to suppose there's an intrinsic nature, right? In virtue of which ones and twos and threes manifest themselves, interact in the way that they do, right? So, so for someone like Peregrine, it seems to us that we have imagined a kind of concrete embodiment of a world that when we assign just an imagination, we don't take it too seriously, in phenomenal red and blue and green and so forth, right? So we have a notion of these intrinsic, intrinsic occupants of the nodes, um, a fleshed-out skeleton, as it were. But we have not, right? Because that phenomenal blue, it turns out, is not a, a basic intrinsic property. Neither is phenomenal red. I don't say that such an ending point makes for an incoherent picture, but it does seem to me to be a most unhappy one. At any rate, I see no good reason not to be unabashedly uh, veridical realist about phenomenal experience. Thank you for your patience. It went on a little longer than I wanted to. Thank you. Um, I'll go. That's a very basic clarification question. Yeah. I wasn't familiar.